Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley. Oh, what a goal! For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. Absolutely fantastic! Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley to run the rule over the past week in the world game. First edition news with Willem van Dender and shortly with all the latest on the Matildas just days out from the World Cup and of course the Socceroos shortly as always our former ITN journo turned punter Derek Dyson will be joining us throughout the show. Now first up in the shadows of the first ever World Cup on home soil we'll remember a pioneer of the very first World Cup which involved an Australian side that is of course the 1974 Socceroos and the man whose life we'll reflect on is Atia Bonnier who passed away in this last week age 76 just weeks after his teammate Manfred Schaefer and their coach Rally Rasic. Atia Bonnier won six 61 caps for Australia is the fifth highest goal scorer for the Socceroos with 25. And while Australia didn't score a goal in their breakthrough tournament, it was Abonyi who came closest with a brilliant lead up against West Germany, where he had no less than three silky touches in the movement late in the game, only to shave the post. We'll talk to Steve Detre, who this past week wrote an emotional obituary on the Keep Up website. Then when the European seasons are in hiatus, the main stories are always around the transfer window. And while we've seen countless big money transfers over the years, none with the and the endless pots of money available to Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fund, who now control four of the kingdom's top football clubs and are on a relentless hunt to stock them with some of the world's leading players. We're all aware that the Public Investment Fund has now funded the arrival into the Saudi League of some of the biggest names in the game, including the likes of Cristiano Ronaldo, N'Golo Kante and Sergio Ramos. Are we seeing a power shift in the game or is this Chinese Super League 2.0? We'll see if we can make sense of where it's at and where it's going to end up with Kieran Maguire from the Price of Football podcast and Liverpool University School of Management. And of course, with the World Cup just days away, well, Women's World Cup corner will be featured at the back end of the show. Michael, it's a, a bumper show. Um, I'm excited, trying to scramble the last-minute tickets to, to get ready, but still, as the Women's World Cup uh, clock ticks down, there's lots of other football news, and uh, you know we'll try and cover it all in the show this week. Yeah, certainly is. Hello, Rob. Hello, listeners. Uh, wherever you're listening to Box the Box, the countdown as well, and truly on, Rob. The excitement's building. Tickets are officially scarce, and uh, they are a scarce commodity. So no doubt um, people are looking at the resale platform of FIFA, trying to get as many tickets as they can. But I was joined to the attention that Megan Rapone, um, uh, the US superstar, um, her fourth World Cup this will be, she's announced that she's going to be retiring uh, at the end of this World Cup. She um, already has two World Cup championships uh, under her belt, 2015 and 2019. She was the golden ball, the best player at the tournament, and the golden boot in 2019. She's got an Olympic gold medal in 2012. Willem, Megan Rapone or Rapone? It depends on, her, on which side of the fence you pronounce her name. But tell me, is, is it going to be a fairy tale ending for Rapone and the Americans at the Women's World Cup? Well, certainly hope not, Edge, but given her record, you wouldn't think it's too far out of the realms of possibility. She's nearly 40 years old, so the powers do wane, and it is nice off the top of the show to acknowledge that you do bestow upon her the highest honour that only the world's great strikers uh, get, and that is your complete butchering of the uh, pronunciation alongside Killian Mbappe. <laughs> but we'll move forward from that point. Uh, look, it's always possible, Edge. They're a, uh, they're a strong side. They've just had a 2-0 win in San Jose over Wales before they jet out to, uh, not to Australia, but to New Zealand, because that's where the bulk of their tournament uh, is, at least to start. Uh, what do you reckon? 
I didn't butcher it. I just struggled with it. But anyway, well, said, I, hang on. Derek's the arbiter of um, of pronunciations. I know Willem is the past master of pronunciations on this show. Derek, uh, do you have a view on it? I'm not the arbiter. I would have said uh, Rapone would have been the way I would have said it. Yeah, Rapone. Uh, there is a, a, a split amongst the commentators about how it's pronounced. Uh, having said that, she's a superstar of the women's game. She's probably one of the um, most well-known athletes in the world. Um, she's obviously been able to uh, walk the walk and talk the talk. She's very big. And who can re- who can forget her wonderful um, comments about uh, not visiting the uh, White House if they won the 2019 Women's World Cup? And I think uh, it was, there's no fucking chance I'm going to uh, visit the, the White House. I think that was what it was, wasn't it, Rob? And because it's an official quote from Megan, um, I think we'll just leave it in the show as it is, Edge, because... Yeah, we we don't tinker with history on this show. No, Nearly four hundred episodes. Any of I can uh, jump in there, Edge. We can get a little bit more liberal with how we uh, with how we run things. Uh, but I think important to note as well uh, in terms of her on field uh, achievements, high profile campaigner for LGBTQI plus rights, as well as many other social causes. She took the knee with Colin Kaepernick in twenty sixteen, uh, and was then uh, she's been a leading voice on a lot of matters. But through their groundbreaking uh, fight with the US Soccer Federation over equal pay, she's been uh, at the forefront of a great deal of that. She certainly has. Willem, give us some news. Okay, we'll start with uh, Attila Abonyi Edge. Australian football has lost another member uh, of its, of our 1974 World Cup squad. Uh, he passed aged 76 last week. A Hungarian migrant, he arrived in Australia aged 10 and left his mark with seven goals in the 1967 Friendly Nations Tournament in Vietnam uh, and then subsequently made two appearances in West Germany. His 25 Socceroos goals keep him tied fifth all time, while his 18-year club career saw trophies aplenty across just the three clubs, Melbourne, Hungary, St. George, Budapest, and Sydney, Croatia, and looking very much forward to speaking to Steve Detro uh, a little bit later on. But Edge, he was 27 when he went past George Smith's record, Socceroos record of 16 goals to be our leading scorer, and that was a title he held uh, for the better part of 30 years. Well, I uh, reached out to a good good mate of mine, Rob Claridge, who is the property expert. You've probably seen um, on Channel 7 or Channel 9 talking up uh, all of the big mansions that he sells around the Sydney Harbour, but he did play for Sydney United and the great Addy Aboni was his uh, player coach when he was when he was uh, running down the... He was actually number 90. He, he partnered Graham Arnold in the four four two formation. I asked him what was his memories of Addy and he said um, he taught him how to shoot a penalty. He taught him how to strike a ball. He was one of his greatest idols in life and the news of him passing uh, brought a tear to his eyes. So that was from Rob Claritch, a former Sydney United striker who had Addy as his coach. And um, yeah, Addy Aboni. We're going to talk about it uh, with Steve Detre uh, in, in a little while, but we've also got a fantastic little grab of some commentary um, with Addy Aboni uh, focused uh, in the in the in the cut and thrust of the West Germany game at the 1974 World Cup. We'll just play that as well when we get Steve on the line a little bit later on, will it? To the Women's World Cup, drama has beset Nigeria uh, with senior players threatening strike action and manager Randy Waldrum. Uh, his position is under threat. Waldrum has aired grievances with the Federation's perceived lack of investment into the tournament, including but not limited to the cancellation of their warm-up camp. 
Separately, local news outlet The Punch has reported six senior players are willing to boycott their opener against Canada after being told the Federation will be withholding their match bonuses. Now, Rob, the Federation has pointed to FIFA's increase in player payments uh, as a reason to withhold what would then be internal payments. So on the very sort of bare face of it, they're saying you're getting money elsewhere, so we'll uh, retain what you would have had uh, anyway. And important to note, these are very sort of senior players. Barcelona's Asishat Asheola uh, at the forefront of it. Rarely do uh, you know would you actually see strike action players not walking out for the uh, for the first game of a World Cup, but uh, it's on the table. Where do you see it? Well, well it's just a, a huge story. I mean, if it had been uh, any of the other uh, European or, or Western nations around the world, it'd be front page news in uh, in in all of uh, of their sporting publications. Just uh, a little over a week out, this game that we're referring to that uh, that they that they declared that they'll boycott is the the match against Canada. It's in Melbourne at Amy Park. The uh, the morning or the lunchtime after the the back to back opening opening matches, and you'd have to think similar. To the most recent drama uh, uh, around the broadcast, that um, that FIFA are going to have to step in and sort something out because there's one thing's for sure is they're not going to let the players um, uh, boycott the game. That's uh, that's not going to happen. So uh, it's uh, you know I, I say hats off if, uh, if the Nigerian Football Federation has uh, has has been behaving in this kind of manner and the, and the players have been left with no choice. Similar to so many other counterparts, whether it's Spain or Canada or the uh, or the French team. Uh, over recent times, then um, then uh, well done to the Nigerian team, and uh, I hope they get a landing that uh, uh, that uh, that they're satisfied with before that um, before that match is played. Absolutely, Nigeria is going through all sorts of problems at home. The issues with the currency, um, the entire international banking system don't, doesn't allow them to transfer money in and out. Um, look, it's just there's a lot happening, but they are a fabulous team. They are the superpowers of uh, football in Africa. We just hope that it's sorted out because if Nigeria get going, they're going to be a challenge for Australia. Plenty of Women's World Cup woven throughout the show, but for now we'll head to Europe where transfer season is well and truly on. David De Gea has exercised his rights as a free agent and left Manchester United following a club record 545 appearances as a goalkeeper. De Gea joined United from Atletico Madrid in 2011 and won the Premier League, FA Cup, Europa League and two League Cups in that time and is a four-time United Player of the Season. He's been linked with a move to the Saudi Pro League, uh, while United are hopeful of replacing him, Derek, with uh, Inter Milan's Cameroon international, Andre Onana. That's uh, an interesting legacy. He came in uh, as a young man at the very back end of the uh, Sir Alex Ferguson reign, won a, a Premier League there, was then pretty solid uh, throughout uh, a great period of flux with lots of managers coming and going. And then towards the uh, the end of the uh, the stay, it seemed like that relationship with the fans and his consistency had maybe just soured a little bit. So where do you see this uh, now that it is all washed up? Yeah, I think this was inevitable, really. I, I don't think Ten Hag was that taken with De Gea as a goalkeeper and he's been looking to bring in someone who can play the so-called modern version of goalkeeping, which means uh, playing with their playing with their feet, being effectively an, uh, an 11th uh, outfield player when we uh, when they're attacking and Anana he played with him at uh, at Ajax and had an amazing season into uh, last season so uh, by all accounts he will come in and, and, and equip himself uh, very well in in that scenario and in terms of David De Gea's legacy well he leaves with the golden glove from last season but as you said he wasn't associated with the 
the the golden years of, of Man United, quite the opposite, the kind of wilderness years that they've had recently. Um, so he won't be up there with um, Peter Schmeichel, for example, who, who I think stands alone at that club. Um, but he'll certainly be regarded as one of the finer goalkeepers in Premier League history, no doubt of his shot-stopping pedigree and um, unbelievable reflexes and kept Man United in, in plenty of games. So, um, yeah, a bit of a sort of a, a sad ending in a way, but I'm sure at 32 there's still plenty of life left, and whether that's in Saudi Arabia or somewhere else, uh, they'll be getting a fine goalkeeper. And a word for De Gea's predecessor between the sticks at Manchester United, Edward van der Sar, who's in a stable but still concerning condition in intensive care uh, following a cerebral hemorrhage. Van der Sar was on holiday in Croatia at the time. Uh, he spent much of the past 11 years on the board of his another one of his former clubs, Ajax, uh, and that is a position that he's recently stood down from. So we'll watch that one with, uh, with interest and concern uh, over the next little while. A, a true legend of Dutch football. To Socceroos and Matilda Central for the Green and Gold Army. The Matilda's Edge are in action this Friday night in their final pre-World Cup clash. Now they've got France before a sold-out Marvel Stadium in Melbourne. That is six days before their opener against Ireland. Bit of transfer news that we thought had gone cold, but has uh, has come back to life in a, in a brilliant way. Hayley Rasso uh, to become the first Australian to play for one of the game's most, uh, yeah, the, the broader world game's most iconic clubs uh, in Real Madrid. Certainly is, and what a fabulous photo that was in her in that you know sparkling white kit, which is uh, Real Madrid. So she'll be the first Australian to play for that famous and iconic club. Um, well done, Haley Rasso, uh, the Kamikaze kid, or ribbons, and and all of. Uh, if you've got a daughter, um, if you've got a if you're a young woman, uh, why don't you buy one of the ribbons that uh, Football Australia's put on sale, and you can wear that at the game and. Um, because she's known in the North American uh, football community as ribbons because she has that beautiful big ribbon in her hair. So Hayley Rasso, uh, she plays she plays only one way, Rob, 100 miles ahead, straight ahead. Oh, she is. And I, I love, I, I really love that feminine touch of the ribbon as well. I, I don't know whether that's a PC or whether it'll get me cancelled to say that, but uh, she embraces it and football embraces it. Um, and uh, it's just, I don't know, it's just nice to see out there, but uh, it certainly uh, doesn't indicate anything than the uh, the most um, determined and tough football player that there is out uh, out there because uh, there's one thing's for sure, the Matildas uh, uh, at the moment are not the Matildas without Hayley Rasso in the squad. It is a groundbreaking effort in a few ways. Just the seventh Aussie to play in Spain and the first Aussie woman, certainly from what's been reported, to play professionally in the nation, full stop. So a uh, huge move and I very Ivy exciting. Luke, Ivy Luke might have played for a Liga team previously, Willem, but uh, we might be just arguing the toss on that one. Yep, no, no, always more than happy to be uh, to be corrected. Excitement as well around the moves for Tom Glover and Sam Silvera to Middlesbrough, uh, two guys who have done their time in the A-League, absolutely. So off to join Riley McGree and Michael Carrick. And coming the other way to close, Rob, is the uh, the Central Coast Mariners, who have announced that they're extremely pleased to have re-signed the eldest Quoll brother, Alou, uh, on a three-year deal. His 26 appearances for the... Club from 2019 to 21 might get a little bit overshadowed by what Garang's done over the past uh, 12 years, but he was the uh, he was the most promising player for a, a period there, and uh, he spent the last two years developing at Stuttgart in Germany, and now comes back to replace Jason Cummings. Great signing. Yeah, no, it's great to see a player that's still in their prime edge um, uh, coming back to uh, to play in the A-League. Certainly is. I'm excited about him because there is a lot of upside, and we do get sort of. Um, uh, romance by Garang's uh, ability, but uh, his older brother is pretty good too. He absolutely is. All right. Well, speaking of players who were 
pretty bloody good. Uh, Adi Obonyi, Attila Obonyi, the Hungarian, came to Australia when he was 10 years old and left an amazing legacy. Uh, gone too soon, just the age of 76, but uh, but football people in this country will, will never forget him. And Steve Detray wrote a, a wonderful obituary in the Keep Up uh, uh, w- website uh, in this past week. If you haven't read it, make sure you do. But uh, we are going to chat to Steve about that after the break. Stick around next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Well, it's become an all too frequent occurrence of late to farewell our Socceroos icons. And this week we pay tribute to another member of the 1974 World Cup squad. Attila Ati Abonyi grew from the whippet-thin son of Hungarian migrants to the Socceroos' all-time leading A international goalscorer. He was a prominent figure in the nation's two coming-of-age tournaments in 1967 and 74 and was an inaugural inductee into Football Australia's Hall of Fame in 1999. Steve Detre wrote a lovely obituary in Keep Up this week and to recount those feats and remember the man, it's an honour to welcome Steve to box to box for the first time. How are you, Steve? I'm great. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. No, thank you very much uh, for your time. We've said goodbye, uh, unfortunately, to Manfred Schaefer, Rally Rasic, and now Atti in quick succession. We spoke to Adrian Alston a couple of weeks ago of what a, a father figure Rally Rasic was, but what's perhaps lost is that with, with Atti, by the time 74 came around, he was already well-established and had already left a, a significant mark uh, with seven goals in the war-torn uh, Vietnam tournament under Joe Vlatsis in 1967. So my first question is, should that be his defining legacy, maybe to just distinguish him slightly from the uh, the broader group's later success earlier on? Um, that's an interesting uh, interesting point of view. I think that he, his, his defining memory shouldn't really just be one event. He, he was a, a significant contributor to the Socceroos, but also to, from my point of view, St George, St George Budapest. And um, I think... One of the great legacies of legacies of Otti was his um, the way he played. It was it was very continental, very very technical, but um, um, and not everybody was in love with the way he played. But but I think that the the his legacy is uh, an elegant style of play. Football's a, a funny game and history works in sort of strange ways. And Otty had a chance against West Germany, which he described as his, uh, his proudest moment. We'll take a listen to that uh, audio now just quickly. Schaefer, Richards, Dubonnier, nicely played. He got out of trouble on that touchline. Well, Richards has Dubonnier in support. Rooney, Mackay. I think by now the crowd would love to see an Australian goal. Is this it? What terrible luck! Abonyi, so close. Attila Abonyi, who came on as a substitute. So the post defies Australia the chance of a goal that would have made headlines throughout Australia. And now the crowd beginning to get behind Australia. The crowd a little disenchanted with the tactics of their own side. They did. Uh, they did very, very nearly see that goal that the crowd were were baying for there, according to the uh, the commentator. So, how different for life is Otti Abonyi in Australia if he finds uh, the corner of the net instead of the post? There, Steve, is he a household name in Australian sport more broadly, or does he? Uh, yeah, is he more broadly as opposed to just remaining uh, as the name we know, sort of within the more firm football community? 
I, uh, the, uh, uh, an interesting question. Yeah, I think that if he'd scored, definitely it would have been. Um, you know, we we had to then wait another thirty years for um, you know for Timmy Cahill to score. So definitely would have been uh, uh, escalated him up the the level of icons, but um, um, I think that 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 moment I, I still remember it. I was watching it with my mother in Sydney. Dad was at the World Cup covering the World Cup, and I remember when that that happened and he hit the post. You know, I think I fell onto the lounge room floor and was writhing in agony. Couldn't believe that it hadn't gone in, and uh, in in classic understated fashion, my mother's only comment was "Oh dear." <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I mean, it, what was really interesting about that, and and it's it's kind of been lost over the years, is that the the German crowd really was um, wanted the 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 German team to really rip Australia apart, and when they realised that. They weren't going to do that, and it was only three nil. They switched, and they really wanted to see the Australians score. And I think um, Adrian Alston also had a chance um, when he made uh, Beckenbauer backpedal furiously before uh, he had a shot wide. And um, you know, I think we we tend to forget how well in the last twenty minutes the Australian team started to play especially with that, that amazing chance from Otty. It was great commentary, Steve, wasn't it? It was just you could feel the, uh, the emotions and when it's uh, matched with a vision, uh, Atty actually is involved you know, quite significantly in the build-up. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions now, but one fellow who really was a super player but sadly passed away in a workplace accident many, many years ago was Jimmy Mackay, who laid the ball on for Addy that day. I know we're talking about Addy, but can you just give us a couple of your memories about Jimmy Mackay? Because he is a, a titan of Australian football, but um, obviously he sadly passed away in a workplace accident on a building site many, many years ago. And I think sometimes uh, we forget about uh, just how massive a player Jimmy Mackay was. Yeah, he was. He was. Um, uh, people, my son always says to me, "Oh, what was Ottie? Who was Ottie like? If you compare him to current player, or who was Jimmy Mackay like?" Uh, and I, I keep on saying that they had their own unique uh, personalities and traits. Jimmy Mackay was a worker, but you see in the lead up to that shot from um, from Ottie that he gets the ball and then suddenly there's this incredible turn of speed where he just breaks away from his marker. And that was his his defining sort of skill, if you like, when we were playing in the good old New South Wales State League, that he would be, he'd, it appears if he was just sauntering and then suddenly would explode and would be able to load the ball off. He also had a wicked shot, as we saw when uh, he scored that incredible goal. Um Against uh, um, against South Korea, but um, for me the thing that I always remembered was that he was such an incredible distributor of the ball. Like he was a he was a mover. He would move. He would take players with him and then create gaps for his uh, for his teammates. Well, like most uh, Europeans, like Odi Aboni, who uh, migrated to Australia, he was ten years old when he came to Australia, and there was that uh, Hungarian migration after the 1956 Hungarian uprising and he he in those days um, 
he obviously stuck close to the Hungarian community. He had that magnificent stint with Melbourne, Hungaria, where they won the Victorian title in 1967. Um, they also won the Australia Cup. He scored a hat-trick in their Australia Cup win over Apia. And then he transfers up to St George Budapest, where he spends the next seven years, three grand finals and two minor premierships. Um, what about the Hungarian community and their relationship with Atty? Um, because um, we don't, um, you know, my generation, um, you know, we didn't see a lot of the powerful Hungarian clubs that were before my time. But what can you tell us about how much the Hungarian Australian community loved Addy? Um, they did. They truly did. He was he was a, a good Hungarian boy, um, uh, made good in a foreign land, um, and you know he he. Um, it was adopted by the Hungarian community in Sydney. Back then, St George actually had uh, a wonderful clubhouse in Hurstville, um, which was the the centre of all sort of Hungarian activity. It was kind of weird, really, in one way, because most of the Hungarian community was either in the eastern suburbs or on the North Shore, and then they go and build a club over in Hurstville. But you know, it was. It was a, um, it was really a centre of of uh, the community, and Otti was um, was dearly loved. Um, he was also regularly cursed when he wasn't, you know, scoring enough goals up to their expectations. There was, um, I, I, you know, I think that you know, sometimes we tend to gloss over these things when we think, oh, these guys were godlike characters, but they were human beings. He was a tailor by trade so you know they would they would work in a regular job and uh then go to training and play on the weekend and i remember once i've got no no recollection of why we went there i went there with my dad to his um where he was working it was somewhere just off george street in a big factory and he was cutting cloth and i was amazed by one of those big you know those machines that cuts about 70 layers of cloth in one go and he was just sort of slicing through this thing like he used to slice through defences. But um, but he he was, you know, my mother always used to say that, you know, she loved watching Otty, but she felt that if if he got a big crunching tackle in the first five minutes, he tended to sort of linger on the touch lines a bit too much for her liking. <laughs> but, um, but then he would sort of suddenly pop up, you know, they would forget about him and he'd pop up and, and knock in a goal. So... Um, he was uh, a really. It was one of my favourite ones to to watch in action. Well, the latter part of his career, he was a player coach at Sydney Croatia. What sort of coach was he? Well, this is the, the this is the the problem is that he was a natural naturally gifted player, and it's a little bit like some of these these other later you know great players who became. Um, uh, ordinary or okay coaches, it's very hard for them to explain what they did in the you know, in the box because it was so intuitive. Um, he was an okay coach, but you know he, he eventually was um, let go by Sydney Croatia, and um, um, and then he he went to uh, I think he went back to St George for a while before he then you know, gave up football altogether, which was a huge shame. 
And Steve, we've uh, we've spoken about 67, we've spoken about 74. If we could just uh, touch on 71, St George Budapest tour uh, of Asia in 1971 uh, under Ali Rasic. You've uh, you've quoted a, an anecdote out of Joe Gorman's book, The Death and Life of Australian Soccer, uh, in your piece on Keep Up, forming part of the uh, the Triple A's up front: Adrian Alston, Alan Ainsley, uh, and uh, and Otty. Yeah, um, that was a, an amazing event. Um, my father was instrumental in getting that tour. Dad was always you know, he was a journalist, but he, I think he was a kind of a frustrated administrator as well. And he was always looking for entrepreneurial things. And he had made good friends with um, uh, Okano, who was the, um, uh, the president of the Japanese Football Association, had been the coach of the, uh, the Japanese team that won the bronze medal in 68 in Mexico. Um and they had a, a, a huge friendship and then Okana became president of the Japanese Federation and said, we should get a team from Australia to play in Japan. And that's how St George went, you know, that happened and George St George went there. And to his dying day, Dad said that the matches that St George played there was the best football he'd ever seen by an Australian team. He said it, it, everything just clicked on the day. You know, the, the, the defence was superb. Um, the midfield was, you know, with, with Johnny Warren uh, at his prime. And then, you know, you had Alston, you had Ainsley, you had a Bonnie, you know, banging in goals left, right and centre. So it was just a, you know, when I read through Dad's memoirs, you know, he always says that was the, for him, that was the ultimate performance by an Australian team that he'd ever seen. Steve, never, uh, never ideal, never pleasant to uh, to farewell our icons and our legends, but it can always provide a, a moment for, for pause and reflection. So thank you very much uh, for, for your time and for your memories and more broadly for the uh, for the lifetime that you and your family uh, have spent in chronicling the Australian game. So thank you for your time on Box to Box. Always a pleasure. Thanks very much. Steve Detroit right there on the passing of Otti Abonyi. Stick around on the other side of the break. Rob and Derek will be back with Kieran Maguire from The Price of Football. <laughs> Well, and when you hear that sound, what's it time for? It's Chemist Warehouse time. Bargains galore. Of course it is. Say, big on Wagner Vitamins just at Chemist Warehouse right now. There's Wagner Vitamin D3 1000 international units for 250 capsules, 10.99. Wagner Liver Detox, 100 capsules for 14.99. Edge, um, you, you live a, a peaceful and quiet life. You don't uh, you don't need the Liver Detox now, I wouldn't have thought. Oh, I think I need it from time to time, Rob. Mm, okay. I might get down to Chemist Warehouse now that I'm back in Melbourne and load up. I've got a I've got a big space in my bag for all the Chemist Warehouse goods and products that I need to take back to Thailand at yeah. the end of August. Well, I do remember the boys do remember that big night you had on the vodka on the night of the World Cup final in Qatar. That was a big night. Maybe you needed the liver detox on it's that actually occasion. actually the semi-final. It's actually the <laughs> semi-final. Get it, if you're going to bag me about that, get it right. And uh, for the Chemist Warehouse uh, paraphernalia, all the products came in handy the next day, right? Needed a phone charge after pounding the WhatsApp group chat for a couple of hours as well, Rob. Oh, absolutely. Now, remember, in addition to visiting your local chemist well, warehouse... It was good. Right? It was Netherlands and Argentina, if, if I remember correctly. There was all sorts of stuff going on in that game. Oh, yeah, but you were sending videos of the, the, the traffic jams outside the stadiums. Um, and you will order online, I'm sure. Click and collect to save time from Chemist Warehouse. Or you could choose fast delivery for same day home delivery. T's and C's, but not for you, Edge. Charges may apply. Chemist Do they Warehouse. Deliver to Sukhumvit soy pad? Yes, they will deliver there for you, mate. And the great savings will still be there every single day. Chemist Warehouse. Why pay more? Box 
to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is box to box. Now, as we said off the top of the show, when the European seasons are in hiatus, the transfer window is uh, the regular talking point. But uh, this year, this off season, we've seen uh, the types of money uh, flying around that um, that we've never seen before, and and that's of course because of the uh, the Saudi. Arabian Sovereign Wealth Fund and uh, well, what's better known as the Public Investment Fund buying uh, uh, players and uh, and paying them sums that um, that the very best of the best players in the Premier League and the top flight European uh, clubs would earn at the peak of their games. And the man who is the go-to guy uh, around the world for, for anything football finance is the host of the Price of Football podcast, also from, of course, the uh, Liverpool University School. School of Management, Kieran Maguire. How are you, Kieran? Uh, I'm all good. Happy to be talking today after uh, the Ashes yesterday, but uh, it's all football today. I, I presume as our conversation is concerned. Oh well, since you bring it up, um, there is another Englishman on this line who's uh, who's, who's very uh, happy. But um, but two one, it's not a bad result. We'll, we'll we'll get you on in a couple of weeks' time and see how it's all going then, Kieran. But uh, Kieran, look, I was listening to one of uh, the editions uh, of your of your podcast with uh, uh, Finley in the background, um, and uh, uh, Finley being, of course, your uh, your what what kind of dog is Finley? He's a setter, so he's insane. But uh, yeah, yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a good good working dog. Yeah, yeah, and he likes to contribute to the podcast. But uh, um, at the time, you—it was only a couple of weeks ago—you were—you were discussing a, a conspiracy theory around Chelsea and and Saudi Arabia, and uh, um, and and you know, it's one of those conspiracy theories that a couple of weeks on, it, it almost feels like it could be true, and that is that uh, the transfer. Uh, Transfers from Chelsea to to um, to some of the Saudi Arabian clubs and offloading money and that sort of thing, uh, it was uh, was just a part of the the bigger game. But but to keep it simple, the, the Saudi, are we seeing a, a a power shift here? Or I, I mentioned this off the top of our show. Is is this the Chinese Super League two point zero? I think it could be a bit of both. If if we take a look at the amount of spending that has occurred as far as the, uh, the, the June to, to August transfer window is concerned. The, the Saudi Pro League is the sixth highest spender in world football, and, and it's come from nowhere. Um, we've still got the big five European leagues being dominant and the Premier League very much being the largest spender. What we are seeing as far as the Saudi Pro League is concerned is that it, it's picking up players at particular points in their career. And it's picking up players from clubs who are, um, I wouldn't say necessarily desperate, but anxious to sell as far as the owners are concerned in order to comply with financial fair play rules or for for cash flow considerations. So that's why we've seen uh, players go from Wolves. And and in respect of Chelsea, the majority of the transfers are are peripheral players or players who are out of contract. Um, So I, I don't think we're necessarily as far down the line as as Chinese Super League 2.0, because in that particular window, the CFL was the biggest spender in world football. Saudi Arabia is certainly significant. And what we are seeing is it's offering a level of wages which are unprecedented, somewhere in the region of $300 million a year for Australian dollars, as, as far as Cristiano Ronaldo is concerned. And, and even by the, the fairly eye-watering figures we see in soccer, um, that's, that's incredibly high. 
Kieran, do you think one of the main differences between what the Chinese leagues had envisaged and and Saudi is that there'll be more staying power with Saudi? I mean, I feel like with the Chinese league, the money dried up. There was a sort of a level of discomfort that, you know, paying truckloads of yuan to uh, players kind of uh, contradicted what the Chinese government uh, is trying to do uh, and its mission in China. Whereas, you know, this is pure rampant capitalism when it comes to PIF and Saudi Arabia. And I don't think those restrictions are necessarily going to apply either. I think, I think you're absolutely right. It's very much a cultural difference. What we saw in the CSL was initially uh, President Xi um, was very keen for China to, to increase its profile um, as far as the world's most popular sport is concerned, um, with a view to hosting the World Cup. Now, China, you know, given that it historically has been the world's biggest population, I think it has now been overtaken by India. Um, felt it was uh, was somewhat inconsistent that it's only ever played in the uh, in the FIFA World Cup finals on one occasion and therefore by increasing interest in the game and there's a lot of interest in the game to begin with um, this was a way of uh, keeping the, the population uh, entertained um, and also with a view to increasing the, the quality of the domestic players the conspicuous consumption uh, didn't didn't really go well with the with the Chinese uh, Communist Party's viewpoint of the world, and, and therefore that enthusiasm was was quickly stifled. I'm not going to see the same in in Saudi Arabia. You know, we've seen in terms of the the spending in Qatar, the spending in Dubai, that uh, the, the the culture there is you know, that these countries have wealth; they want to be seen to demonstrate that wealth. And what better way to do that than to uh, get access? to high-profile players like Benzema, Ronaldo and so on um, and uh, show people that they, they potentially are a world part of power and again with the intention of hosting the FIFA World Cup in either 2030 or 2034. There's been some kind of outcry from I suppose either Premier League fans, Premier League circles um, about what Saudi Arabia is doing. On a, on a very broad level, is there a kind of hypocrisy here? I mean, uh, with the way that the Premier League has gone about sort of hoovering up the best players uh, in the world and, and and looking at it that way. And then the second part of that question would be, we kind of touched on it before with Chelsea and obviously with um, the ownership of, of Newcastle with, with Piff being quite transparent there. How could this league sort of not only impact the competitive nature of the Premier League, but also kind of distort it economically as well as much as Chelsea, for example, are benefiting from offloading some of their stars. I think you're absolutely right. There's huge hypocrisy coming from certain quarters uh, as far as the Premier League is concerned. Premier League has marketed itself superbly over the course of the last 30 years and, and therefore it's become the preeminent competition in terms of ability to, to pay for both transfers and wages. Now that there is genuine competition for that, it, it, it's acting slightly affronted. Um, I, I don't see there However, there being a, a huge issue. First of all, there's, there's enough good players to go around both the Prem, the Saudi Pro League, and the other European leagues. So both those players will come from a variety of locations themselves. Um, and secondly, uh, as far as many European players are concerned, the pinnacle, the the competition that they want to compete in, is 
the uh, is, is the UEFA Champions League, and clearly moving to the Saudi Pro League would, would not enable them to do that. So uh, players are looking for two things: they're looking for financial security and, and maximising, uh, you know, their, their their wealth in what what is a fairly short career. And um, those two things can run in parallel. If you if you take a look um, you know, at the highest paid players in the Premier League, they're probably on around about you know. 30 million uh, Australian dollars a year, um, you know, that, 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 that's enough to not only uh, you know, help them during their careers, but to give them sufficient resources to, to live in a career environment as well. Can, can you double or treble that in Saudi Arabia? Yes, there is, but um, you, know, you will find that it, uh, it, it is culturally different uh, you know, in, in terms of if you've got a young family, do you, you know, is that where you want uh, the education to take place? Uh, would your partner feel comfortable uh, being in a, in, a, in, in a society where, where there is a different perspective towards um, the rights of women, which, which come and go as well. You know, you talk to people that work there, you know, one day everything uh, is, is fine and the, and the next day uh, you know, things seem to be slightly slightly changed. So I, I think you, you have to persuade people to, to want to go there and, and many European players quite like the, the, the European vibe, the you know, sort of cafe culture, the, the, uh, the football culture that exists and, and that's a, it's a different culture. Now, different doesn't mean better or worse. It is different. But uh, I think it has to be a big financial persuasion to uh, to get many, many players to go across. So, so there's, there's plenty of players uh, enough to go around both, both Saudi and Europe. Is there any indication of how far they're, they're, they're willing to go with this? I mean, there is a model as old as time almost where various leagues we've spoken about, China, MLS have done it with marquee players even in a way in here in australia they've sort of dabbled with marquee signings here too but you know obviously the volume of players is quite interesting with the saudi case and you know will it be that they you know they will try and backfill every single one of these clubs with european caliber players because obviously there will be a drop off to the the quality with all due respect to the quality of the domestic based saudi players there is going to be there is going to be a, a, a drop off there. Do you see this as being a project that they will literally try and rep- replicate as far as they can a top European league in terms of squad depth, uh, etc.? Or do you still do you think this is just like kind of a, a, a sort of hyperinflated version of the model that others have done, just by making sure that every team has one or two decent players? I, I think I think the latter is more likely to be the case. First of all, yeah, the Saudi authorities, they want Saudi to be successful as uh, as an international team as well. The Saudi Arabia, I think it's qualified for five of the last seven FIFA World Cups. So, so there is a strong domestic element. The last thing they would therefore want is for all of the domestic players to be squeezed out because that, that would improve, yes, the Saudi Pro League, but it would uh, you know, decrease the quality of their abilities to A, qualify and B, make progress as far as the FIFA World Cup is concerned. So, Again, I think a couple of marquee players per team. But, you know, the fact that some of the, the clubs have been privatised, others have been acquired by the by the PIF, um, is, is indicative of if they want to buy the best players in the world, they certainly have the resources to do so. There, there's not the equivalent of financial fair play to act as a constraint there. Um, it, it's really a case of uh, whatever the, the authorities decide is, is most appropriate will be what drives uh, the, the system forwards. Yeah, just one final one with me on this one, uh, Kieran. Just about the the general influence of Middle Eastern uh, countries and, and nation states 
on football into the future, you've 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 mentioned the fact that Saudi Arabia are very interested in that 2030 World Cup. Obviously, we've just had Qatar, and and they would have been looking at that very closely in terms of you know how that was received worldwide, and and that some of the criticism beyond some of the the human rights and sports washing and other things that could have been levelled at it was the lack of the lack of pedigree in that country so is is saudi arabia in a way trying to you know it has a it has a a legitimate football head uh, pedigree in terms of world cup football but are they trying to supercharge that with this and then just more generally is this also part of a bigger maneuver you mentioned the champions league and everyone wants to play in that well you know, fifa have made no secret that they'd like to get a piece of that club football um pie and is there also a bit of that conversation going on that Saudi's positioning itself to be part of that global club landscape as well? Oh, without doubt. Um, and I think as far as uh, Middle East and the wealth is concerned, um, it's a case of what are we going to buy next? Uh, football is, is a great way of getting into people's uh, eyeballs, into their televisions and so on. Um, it is a, an industry which which can break even. I think, in, in respect of what we've seen with the Saudi Arabian LIVC scheme, um, that it's managed to disrupt um, golf. Now, football football can be achieved with a couple of extra zeros um, at the back of it. Um, but in terms of the, the the impact of hosting a World Cup is concerned, um, the Qatar World Cup, uh, as far as the Middle Eastern markets are concerned is was was considered to be a great success, um, and ultimately it's it's a bit like the if you've ever seen the film Men in Black, yeah, uh, lots of people will will raise uh, issues with regards to human rights, with regards to LGBT, with regards to women's rights, and so on, and then the football starts, and, and it's a bit like the magic pen in, in Men in Black, where where everybody forgets what. Uh, what's been happening in the in the run up to the tournament, and and the focus is on the football, and, and it you know it was it was a good, very good tournament. It was a fantastic final, and, and ultimately that's where the, the the memories will will be focused on. Mm, great analogy there, uh, Kieran. Uh, for anyone who does listen to your podcast, The Price of Football, they'll be familiar with some of these uh, um, these comparisons you make. And uh, thank you for choosing one of them for our show, mate. But uh, uh, before we let you go, I just wanted to ask you a question about um, about the uh, the FA. Uh, currently in the process of selling their TV rights and uh, more than a suggestion, but uh, but it looks like a, a distinct likelihood that uh, the um, uh, the Premier League might be the the the, um, the purchaser. So the suggestion uh, that we're reading is that it will seriously weaken the the FA Cup. But what's your view on all of this? Yes, I, I, I think I, I hear these things, and, and I am quite cautious as to the benefits for, for football. The, the FA is desperate for cash; it wants to help fund grassroots football. Um, on the back of that. Now, as far as the, the current international deal is concerned, the FA Cup is, uh, is, is a good competition, um, but uh, I don't think they're confident of getting 100 million sterling a year um, uh, from, from negotiations with other parties. Um, if, the, if the Premier League uh, acquires the rights uh, internationally, um, then it will try, try to leverage on those rights in terms of having matches taking place, first of all, from a time perspective, uh, when, when it suits the international market, potentially some of those matches themselves taking place. It, 
in international markets. Uh, you know, presently, the FA Cup semi-finals and final take place at Wembley in, in London. Uh, you know, if if Riyadh comes in with a blockbuster offer, um, would would the uh, would the new rights holders be trying to persuade the FA to take advantage of those under the terms of the contract? So. Um, you can see you can see why the, the Premier League wants this, and also why it wants to do this as quickly as possible, because it's very opposed to the idea of independent regulation uh, in English football to try to protect the game from the interests of uh, a, a very few rich owners who uh, who aren't necessarily football fans, but are very successful in their own right, and they want that that success to transfer to to their bottom line as far as the football market is concerned. Hmm, what's this space? All right, mate, before we let you go, Kieran, in the spirit of your cheeky beginning to our interview, um, the Women's World Cup is only a week away. Obviously, uh, the only team to defeat the Mighty Lionesses uh, under the reign of Serena Wiegmann is, of course, the Matildas. Um, your observations on how well the Lionesses might go uh, in this tournament, mate? Uh, we know that we don't want to finish second in our group because uh, we'll end up uh, facing them in the round of 16 if we do. Um. Well, there's a case of saying the Lionesses had peaked last year as far as winning the European competition was concerned. So um, I'd expect them to get to the semi-finals at least, but uh, they're not firing on all cylinders. So uh, I think the Matildas have got a fair chance of uh, if, if they do face England. But it's going to be a tournament that everybody's looking forward to. Uh, mm. uh, you know, the, 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 even with the time differences, you know, you, you have to suffer it for cricket. We'll we'll yes. we'll bear that in, in terms of the women's football. Yes, and I did that. I, I went to bed after the first session last night, put the AirPods in my ear and listened to the dulcet tones of Aggers and Jim Maxwell um, as as England won what was a gripping test match. Hopefully the Women's World Cup is just as exciting as this current Ashes series, mate. Kieran, thanks so much for your time. We know you've uh, you've broken into a, a university lecture at the University of Liverpool to talk to us, mate. So uh, thanks so much and, uh, and we, we hope we get the chance to talk to you again soon. Absolutely. All the best, guys. Take care. Bye-bye now. Kieran McGuire from the Price of Football podcast. If you haven't already got it in your feed, make sure you get it because it's not only informative, but it's really entertaining as well. Um, Okay, after the break, more Women's World Cup on Box to Box. Willa, willa, willa. Everybody's going to buy Hoyt Spices. Everyone's going to save a dollar or two. Everybody's going to buy Hoyt Spices, yeah. Don't you just love that jingle? Everyone's going to save a dollar or two. Without Hoyt Spices, roast chicken, well, it's just roast chicken. I know I love to rub some Middle Eastern spices into my roast chicken. Derek, uh, if you're going to roast a chicken and you want to power pack it with flavour, what uh, Hoyt uh, spices are you going to uh, are you going to use? Well, in fact, Rob, I did actually roast a uh, chicken uh, yesterday. Um, and mine does have a bit of a, yeah, a bit of a, a Middle Eastern flavour. So, yeah, there's definitely some point serves and spices in there and then sometimes I'll, I'll use thyme as well I've, uh, I don't know if you've got any dried thyme in the ho- hoist race but that, that would also go well with that mm. one of my famous roasts absolutely Derek the roast king Mate, well, you, I'd make a rub of cumin, paprika, turmeric and cinnamon absolutely delicious um, you would uh, be used to those sorts of uh, succulent flavour bombs at your uh, your family home Willem when you go back to visit mum Yep, most certainly. The uh, Hoyts, Herbs and Spices always uh, packed in the pantry there, Rob. Plenty on uh, on offer, and I'm just surprised a little bit that Derek didn't cook garam masala chicken. Of course. He's the king of garam masala. 
an edge of the chili there over in Bangkok 20 years over there. Change the mood of your food right. with herbs and spices. Yes, Mike. Got a question on the roast chicken, Rob. Do you stick a lemon up its backside when you oh, roast the chicken? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, my old mate Bob Hart, he used to use the beer butt chicken, mate. He used to just get a can of VB and plonk the chicken on top of it, put it under his roast and uh, right through the day. And, uh, oh, mate, it would be one of the tastiest chickens you've ever eaten. Change the mood of your food with Hoyt's Herbs and Spices, available at Coles Woolworths and all good independent supermarkets. Fill those empties with Hoyt's Spices, yeah! Box to box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. We hope you've enjoyed the show so far. Great reflections on Adia Bonyi as we gradually lose uh, those legends of 1974 and Kieran Maguire. I mean, if uh, there is a greater expert on the finances and the money of football in this world, then uh, I don't know who they are because Kieran is the go-to guy for just about every uh, podcast, radio station publication around the world to, to talk about finances. Uh, Willem, you've got a, a few bits and pieces to go before we get stuck into it, though. Edge, um, a little teaser for our uh, our episode of Offside. It's been a few months since we, we uh, recorded one, but uh, who did we have a chat to? Uh, uh, and it's going to drop a little later on in the week. Well, we've recorded a 50-minute uh, discussion with Heather Reid, uh, what I like to call the custodian of uh, the journey of women's football. She's bookended uh, the women's football journey in Australia. She was involved at the very beginning and she's still kicking after a little challenge with cancer. So we're going to talk about all of the highs and obviously the obvious lows in her football career over 40 years, Rob. Uh, and it was a enthralling discussion, wasn't it? Yeah, look, it's, uh, but Heather uh, has been quiet for a long, long time now, and um, and it, uh, it it was great of her to, to give us the opportunity to, to have a conversation with her where we were able to fairly reflect on what has been a great career and uh, and also to ask some pretty um, uh, poignant questions uh, about those uh, controversial issues uh, around the uh, the uh, the sacking of Alan Stajic and her, uh, her departure from the Football Australia board. But, uh, but look out for it. It's going to drop in your podcast links um, during the course of the week. Now, Willem, um, World Cup just ticking, not far away, getting excited. What do you got? Yeah, yeah a bit of news on the uh, inclusivity front. Rob, a, a box that had to be ticked, not too hard, but uh, certainly good that it has been done. Football Australia and New Zealand football have received confirmation from FIFA that their request for all official flags of Australia and those of Aotearoa New Zealand uh, will be flown inside the stadium. So that means at the 35 matches in Australia, we'll see the national flag, the Australian Aboriginal flag, and the Torres Strait Islander flag on display. And at the 29 matches in Aotearoa, New Zealand, we'll see the national flag, uh, the Maori flag, uh, and the Maori flag, which is known as Tino Rangatira Tanga. Uh, this was a suggestion edged by the First Sisters of Country One Hour by Sea and Sky, uh, the turn of tournaments, all woman First Nations and Maori Cultural Advisory Panel. James Johnson has thanked FIFA for taking such recommendations on board. Yes, look, you know, in the... Uh... The current climate we live in it's a good decision and um it will be i mean we've seen the matildas in the past uh really highlight the first nations aspect of their uh their team their teammates uh, first and foremost but obviously their connection to uh the first nations narrative so uh look it's a it's a good decision it's not a decision we should really uh, get too concerned about it's just a smart one and uh, we'll see those flags hang, hanging from the stadium appropriately um in australia 
Some results. Uh, they've hit the back of the net. New Zealand, they've uh, defeated Vietnam 2-0 uh, in their last match before the tournament opener against Norway. Uh, so we are 24 matches into Jito Klimkova's tenure as, uh, as Kiwi boss. This was just their fourth win uh, and first in 10 matches throughout that 10-match period. They've only netted twice. Uh, so they are going to be right in the mixer uh, with Norway, who Rob has... Uh, flagged as the dark horse of the whole tournament. The Allen Stajic led Philippines. We're going to jolt the uh, tournament in some way or another at some point, you would think. Uh, and Switzerland. Put you on the spot, Derek. Which uh, two sides come out of that group? Uh, New Zealand, the Philippines, Norway, and the Swiss. Yeah, thanks for the uh, notice there. Well, I'm coming to the New Zealand football expert as well. I'm, I'm glad that you uh, brought me into this discussion. Um, I'm, going to, I'm going to say Norway and go Rob. And I'm going to be very inventive and go for New Zealand as well. Uh, I think it would be good for the home nation, one of the home nations to get through. We all, all know that ticket sales in Ottawa are a little sluggish. So obviously we'd like to see that team in particular doing well and filling up the stadiums uh, the other side of the Dutch. So, uh, yeah, that's my analysis. The US have also had a win, 2-0 in San Jose before they've uh, flown out. Trinity Rodman scoring both goals there. And Edge, your pet topic. Over the past three weeks, we've had the theme. We've had the official World Cup song. And now we're going to have the official Matilda's anthem. Tones and I, you're familiar with her work, singer of Dance Monkey. Uh, she's released or going to release the greatest uh, in the coming days. Words you never thought you'd hear from James Johnson. We aim to create an unforgettable fusion of sport and sound. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Tones and I, she's from Frankston, isn't she? She is, that's correct. She's from Frankston, a good uh, uh, little satellite city down in uh, Victoria in near Melbourne. So, yeah, looking forward to that. She's got a couple of big hits, as you've mentioned. So when do we get to hear it, Willem? Well, they've, uh, they've released the song without the actual audio. There's no song as yet. How many songs get an official sort of uh, documentation and press release before, it comes, before they come out? Oh, only a football federation looking to pump up their own ties, really. Oh, but hang on. I'm going to give um, Tones and I a bit of a wrap, actually, because I had a personal experience with her um, at Carols by Candlelight, um, which uh, anyone in Australia knows is that iconic uh, event uh, on Christmas Eve. And uh, and I talk about my little Alexander a lot, who uh, uh, has uh, cerebral palsy, is in a wheelchair, and he loves carols. So he will listen to carols any time of the year. And we were given some seats right up uh, uh, on the, the flanks of the stage. And, and uh, the, uh, the, the performance were, were passing us um, uh, at different stages and t Tones and I was performing last year and she gave me a bit of a look as if to say, do you think the little man might uh, like to say hello? And I gave her a nod and she wandered over and it was just one of the moments of his life. So Tones and I, number one fan sitting right here and uh, I'm sure whatever she's put out will be huge for the Women's World Cup. Well said. Good on you, Tony. She used to uh, manage one of my mates at uh, Osmosis Chadston, I think, Edge. There's really? my personal experience. Well, she's, she's got a personal connection with all of us except me and Adam. And, Adam. <laughs> and Derek. And Derek. All right. Okay, boys, let's wrap it up. Uh, it's been a great show. Uh, and uh, uh, really, well, this time next week, um, Ed, you're going you're gonna to be in the middle of the World Cup, so you're not going to be doing the show, but um, it'll only be literally days away. And uh, I'm going to the uh, Matilda's France game on Friday night. That's a sellout. Can't wait for that with my mate Johnny from Hoyts and Zlati and Sam, the boys I often mention oh, on this show. <laughs> yeah, the crew. So uh, well done, Willem. Thank you. Cheers, Rob. Edge. Thanks, Good Rob. Work. Can't wait for the next uh, six or seven weeks. And uh, who gets to the final, uh, we're about to find out. So Australia, the listening audience of uh, Box to Box, you enjoy this Women's World Cup. It is one of the best events in the world. And go Matildas. Well done. Derek, and you're taking the beautiful Maeve. I think I'm going to be joining you at the game. Hopefully if it goes ahead, if Nigeria actually do turn up. 
Yeah, well, let's hope someone turns up. It'd be a bit of an anticlimax. But yeah, I'll uh, see you at um, Nigeria, Canada. We're probably talking on this show before that anyway. I think we will be. And Adam Maloney, I mean, behind the buttons. So Adam uh, has been with us for the past four weeks while Damien Tardio has been away doing an absolutely magnificent job, first-class professional that he is, making sure the show uh, is as good as we can possibly make it down. But it wouldn't be anything unless you listen to it, and we are very grateful that you do. Please subscribe to box to box Stoppage Time and Offside, wherever you get your podcasts. Tweet us at box to box nts and follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and make sure you join us throughout the week as our podcasts drop and we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the World Game.